as we're collecting up your gifts this morning to be used in ministry throughout the world, would you open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 46. Uh, if you're visiting today, we're really glad if you're in town for a holiday family thing or you're just visiting uh, this morning, we're glad you're here a part of us and we want to encourage you to just worship Jesus with us, focus your mind on him. This isn't about us, it's about him. And uh, we have been studying the song of Mary that she sang when she discovered that God was going to bless her with Jesus. And as we've celebrated the advent of Christ in our world at Christmas, uh, one of the things we've been focusing on is Mary's journey. Uh, We don't want to script what becoming a believer looks like and what it means to follow Jesus because it's a little bit different for all of us, but the thing that's common is we come to an understanding of who Christ is one way or the other, and we respond. Mary's beauty and the greatness of her life wasn't in her perfection, it was in her faith. Her ability to trust God against what seems to be many people common sense. Uh, Just kind of as a quirk this year, we've entitled this series The First Christian because I'd like to nominate Mary as the first person I can see biblically who placed her life in the hands of Jesus. And she placed it in the hands of an infant. And at one point, an unborn baby. She believed so much in what God had promised to do that she was willing to place her life on it. I want to clarify, I don't know that she's the first person saved, and I, don't, I know she's not the first believer in God, but I think she's an amazing young lady in her teenage years who finds out she's pregnant, will live in a society that doesn't understand God's calling, and will be found faithful nonetheless. When the angel appears to her and lets her know that she is going to become pregnant, she's going to carry the Christ child she escapes to her cousin Elizabeth's home, and Elizabeth, upon greeting her, says, You're, you have the baby, don't you? And Mary's faith is solidified in such a way that she sings what's the, what in the Latin is called the Magnificant, that, which is the Latin word for the first words of her song. But really, it's Mary's song. Let's look at it on the screen as I read. Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arms. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has, left the rich, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary does a significant thing in this song for this untrained, poor teenage girl. She proclaims at the beginning who she is and what it's going to take for her to believe. She says, my soul and my spirit. Then she professes things about God that she can trust in. He's mighty, he's holy, and he's full of mercy. She, she believes in who she is in him. She doesn't believe in who she is on her own. There's no way Mary can go through this journey of faith all by herself. So she cries out, and we talked about it last week, that my God is able, my God is willing, my God is perfect. Because of that, she can trust him. Today I want to look at what her song concludes with because it's significant, not only theologically, it's significant because Mary moves beyond what God is able to do for her And she recognized what God is able to do with her. And we talked about that last week, but I want to make sure we sink that hook in deep. Christianity is just not about what God does for you. It is ultimately and always will be about what God does with you. 
And with you means he, he will make you a blessing. He will take all of your talents, abilities, and gifts, and he will not only bless you with them, but he blesses us to give things away, not to keep them. In fact, in Luke chapter 2, uh, in verse 14, one of the most famous passages of all Christmas is when the angels cry out to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. <clears throat> it says men, not man. And that's not gender specific. The angels saying God is doing what he promised to do for all of us. And those who get in on it, get in on history-changing truth. Those who ignore it, are doomed to face a reality of what they missed, not what they kept. But I want to look at the last, from beginning verses 50 through 55, I want to spend a few moments this morning celebrating on our Christmas Sunday, <clears throat> excuse me, what Mary saw was God doing. What was he doing and why was he doing it? First of all, I noticed that Mary cries out about God's startling love. It's the first thing I want to talk about this morning, startling love. Because love that grows over time doesn't catch us by wonder as much as that moment that you find yourself in love. I don't just mean romantic. It can be an amazing thing. I have an affinity for dogs. I always have. And I can see a little puppy and think of the 97 reasons not to have a dog, but I see a little puppy, I'm in love. And I think it's worth it. And then, I'm, then Heather looks at me and goes, no. <laughs> Smacks me on the nose and puts me on a paper and then it's all over. But I do, I just love dogs. She's allergic. But I just love them. And so it's not romantic. When we say love, love sometimes comes upon us. And it's a sensation that we want to give ourselves to something. We want to care about something. We want to provide something. Verse 50, Mary cries out, His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. Fear. There's a story told about some criminals, some burglars who were casing neighborhoods. People would be announcing they were going away for Christmas and they would see vans pack up and cars pack up and people pull out and they realized they were going away for a couple of days and they began casing these homes to go in and take what they wanted. And they entered this one home. This guy enters a home and he comes in the, the back door through the kitchen and when he walks in with his flashlight, he hears this sound. He hears this noise that says, I see you and Jesus sees you. And he steps out of the house and shuts the door and his heart's racing but he hears no sirens, he hears no alarms, he thinks, well, that's strange. So he walks back in, he's looking around, and he hears, I see you, and Jesus sees you. He takes a flashlight, and he's flashing around the room, and he looks up in the corner, and there's a parrot in a cage. And he looks at the parrot, and the parrot says, I see you, and Jesus sees you. And he laughs, and as he laughs, he lowers, a, lowers his little spotlight, and right under there is a Doberman Pinscher. And the Doberman Pinscher has a name tag that says, Jesus. <laughs> and the parrot says, attack, Jesus, attack. It's <laughs> a way that story ought to end. <laughs> Righteous fear. Parrot, nah. Doberman Pinscher, I'm out. How about you? There is fear in the Bible. What does it mean to be afraid of God? Most of us who don't delve into the scriptures, into the Psalms and the Proverbs to understand what fear is, most of us think we are afraid that God's going to flick us off his globe. And that's not the fear we talk about. When we talk about fear, there are two kinds of fear in scripture. There's the fear of law and there's the fear of love. The fear of law is simply defined as, I'm scared of making a mistake so that I might be in trouble. Most of us, if I can speculate, and I want you to be free from this. This is what Christmas is really all about, if I can be so succinct, is to get you away from the fear of law. Jesus did not come so that you can get a third chance not to screw up. That's a fear of law. 
If I don't keep the Ten Commandments, God's going to hate me. If I don't live perfectly, God's going to send me to hell. And unfortunately, churches have been built on building the fear of law in people rather than the fear of love. The fear of love is different because the fear of love says, I don't want to wound the one I love. I don't want to hurt the one I care about. As parents, if you've been blessed to be a parent, every one of us understands the fear of love over the fear of law. We don't want our children to obey because we're in the room and we can spank, ground, or discipline. We want our kids to obey because they love us and they understand that even in those moments that they don't understand why we're enacting restrictions, it's because we love and care about them. Right? Parents, speak up. Your kids are in the room going, really, Dad? You know, tell them. It's because you love them. Not because I told you so, but it's because I care about you. And Mary says that mercy extends to those who fear him. Not because he's going to punish us, because we don't want to hurt God. We want to treasure God. We want to value God. And it would say later, Luke would record, that Mary would treasure up all these things about Jesus in her heart. It's the fear of love. It's not worrying about being hurt. It's worrying about hurting. In Psalm 130, the psalmist writes, I fear you because you have forgiven all of my sins. And when you understand that, you're beginning to see how the fear of love begins. The psalmist says, God, I I love you and I fear you because I don't want to hurt you for all that you've done for me. You see, when the gospel comes in and you see that you're not saved by what you do, you're saved by what Jesus did, then disrespecting and devaluing Jesus becomes something you never want to do. Amen? You don't want to hurt the one who's been good to you. you. We've all been in circumstances where we're in a group of people and someone is being talked about. And we love that person being talked about. Or they're a friend of ours. Or we have a loyalty to them. And when that's begun, brought into question and people are questioning whether they're a good person, fear of love allows us to stand up and say, I don't know who you're talking about, but I know that person. They're not that kind of person. Or you just walk away going, I can't be a part of that. Why? Because you never want anyone to know that you're devaluing and disrespecting someone you care about. You see, I can relate to it as the feeling of almost being in an accident. And when I wrote this a week ago, I didn't know today would be a black ice kind of day. But have you had that moment where you've lost control of a vehicle or you see someone crossing the the center line and coming towards you and you get that flushed feeling? You take that deep gasping breath and your face goes, gets this heat rush and you escape it and you get done and you have that jittery moment. Shake your head if you're with me this morning. You've had that moment where you go, ah. And your mind spends about 30 seconds pondering what could have happened if you hadn't escaped that moment. Or if you've ever been in one of those fender benders and your car is going toward another car and your mind calculates, which is fascinating to me, your mind calculates, oh, you're hitting them. (laughs) And no matter what you're doing, you're thinking, oh, man, i got to call the insurance agent. I'm going to have to explain to my wife. And all of this is going on while you're four feet from the vehicle. It's amazing what fear does in preparing us. I think many of us need to begin to learn to live in the fear of love. We say we don't want to live in fear. No, fear is healthy. I want my boys to fear fast-moving vehicles. I want them to to fear danger so that they stay safely away from that edge. Fear of love. It's a vulnerability. See, when Jesus asks us to pray and we don't pray, the thought shouldn't be, is he mad at us? Fear of love leads us to say, why would I not want to spend time talking to Jesus today? When he says, hide the word in your heart so that you may not sin against me, instead of saying, oh, I've got to read the Bible. I don't get it. It makes no sense to me. 
Instead, that's, that's the fear of law. The fear of love says, I'm going to begin to read it, and I'm going to ask Jesus to reveal himself to me, because I promise you he will. He'll blow your mind when he shows up, and you're like, whoa. This isn't open the Bible for five minutes in the morning before I go to work. This is saying, Jesus, I want to know you. I want to read your story. I want to understand you to a greater degree. Psalm 25, 14. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. I think that's radically different than most of us understand. We think that if we just don't do bad, God will love us more. And Jesus is like, no, I already love you more. And now I want to teach you and show you and guide you and direct you. You see, one is a fear of protecting ourselves, and the other is a fear of releasing ourselves. And that's the challenge for all of us. It's exactly what Mary did. She allowed his startling love for her to enter her into a new relationship with him. Second thing she points out is his eternal pursuit. His eternal pursuit. Not only was his love startling and life-changing and freeing, but she also realizes she's not the only one he's after. And she forecast you and I into her story. Verse 51. He has performed mighty deeds with his arms. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said. One of the startling truths about Christianity that the bubble we need to pop is... Christianity is not a private endeavor. It never has been and it never can be. I want you to know that. Christianity is not something that you're to hold within yourself, that you're simply to to leave it within you, and as long as you and God are right, everything else is okay. Our world is telling us, and I don't want to read the front pages, but it happens even this week. People don't want to know that you believe in God. In a world that says be tolerant, we're told the only thing that's intolerant is to speak about faith. But you cannot be a believer. Now, I'm not saying go stand on the street corner and yell at vehicles. I don't think we're ever called to do that. But in the relationships God's given you, in the doors and opportunities that you have, walk through them proudly displaying that there is a God who loves all of us with great passion. It's eternal pursuit. Now, I want to say this very clearly. I wrote it, and it's in my notes. Read this. Christianity is irritably public. It's not easy. It's going to be an irritant to us because if our faith is kept with inside us, it's not a faith we profess. And let me try to explain what that looks like. You cannot be in a marriage, you cannot be a parent, and you cannot be a true friend if those realities are kept within you and not on public display. And the covenant between Jesus and us is a marriage. You can't be privately married. You can't be married in a small group of people and then go live separate lives for the rest of your days and legally you're married, but you're not married in covenant, you're not married in intimacy, you're not married in relationship, you're not struggling and journeying together. We all get that. I know some of us want to be, but you can't be a parent in private either. You can't go, yeah, that's my kid, but I'm not, I'm out. You can't do that. As irritating as they are, they are our children, and when they're squirreling around in public, whose responsibility is it to be the parent? And when they have great success, whose responsibility is to celebrate with them and lift them up and be a great parent? It's ours. You can't be private in a relationship that matters to you. And what Mary teaches us in this passage of Scripture is, 
that she's going to have to go public with her relationship with God, just like he's gone public with his pursuit of us. She's going to be unashamed. And even though she's going to be called that kind of girl because she got pregnant as a teenager, even though her parents and her society won't understand the truth of it, she's willing to risk going out in public and being the mother of God's son, if that's what God asked her to do. And my challenge at Christmas is to receive the gift of Jesus. You can't answer the question, what'd you get for Christmas? Nothing. Because when someone says to you, what'd you get for Christmas? I challenge all of you, look them in the eyes and say, God's love all over me. And they're going to go, oh man, you're one of those. Be public. Because <laughs> at least you're not walking around pregnant and unmarried, amen? Because <laughs> God didn't put you through that and he put Mary through it and he blessed her. And we think, well, I can't go to work and say, you know, God, God, God loved me all over. That's stupid, Mark. Well, do what you got to do. But you can't be married, you can't be a parent, you can't be a good friend if you're going to keep it private. You need to be public, you need to be bold, because Mary does not magnify what God did for her. He, she's magnifying what God is doing with her. You see, every person in the world is called to a moment of choice. I believe, now you can argue with me, and it's not, I don't know that anyone's going to win. I'm not trying to be right. But the more I've studied this passage, I believe Mary could have walked away from God and said, nah, pick somebody else. But the reason we talk about Mary 2,000 years later she was willing to go public with her faith because she believed in a God who was changing history. See, all other religions are private. They're deeply private and deeply subjective. I just want to feel right with God, and as long as God and I are good, it doesn't matter what anybody else does. That's not Christianity. Read the book of Acts. There was nothing private about the movement of God in culture. Nothing. Christians stood up and got killed for it. In America, we get angry when someone loses a television program. But in other parts of the world today, there will be people who will die because they refuse to say anything but Jesus is Lord. And I don't wish that, but we need to make choices today. Is the Christmas gift something we're going to celebrate and be startled by and offer it? You see, she sings about God's mighty deeds that freed millions. She sings about bringing down rulers that corrupted life. She sings about what's happening out there will be fulfilled in Jesus. She sings a song of hope. And then she says, and the most interesting thing she says in all of the passage we just read is all the way back here in verse 55 when she says, even as he said. It shouldn't surprise us what Jesus came to do. It was prophesied through all of scripture. We talked about it last week. If you want to throw away the virgin birth because it doesn't matter to you, I need you to know that if Jesus did not fulfill all the prophecies of the Messiah, he could not be the Messiah. So every detail of the Christmas season is really about whether or not Jesus is God. And I thank the Lord he is. Because back in the garden when he told Adam and Eve, I'll fix this. And I will send one who will make right what you've just shattered. That's exactly what he did. In fact, if you go back to Genesis 18... In God's promise to Abraham, he said, Out of your descendants will come one, and by him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I want to read that again. Out of your descendants, Abraham, one of your sons will come, and by him all the nations of earth will be blessed. Merry Christmas. It was Jesus. It was a promise that even as he said that he would do. Yet Mary realizes that God is faithful. Even though God may be slow on our calendars, he never forgets a promise. He never refuses to fulfill his prophecy. 
And so the message of Christmas is not just that God will bring love into your life in a startling way, but that God will use your life to change generations, just like he used Mary's. And then lastly, his startling love, his eternal pursuit of all men and women, and lastly, his compassionate satisfaction. The beauty of Christmas for every one of us is God knows the itch you can't scratch. God knows that thing right now that you can't tell anybody you're really wanting. God knows right now what that need is deep inside of you, that fear is deep inside of you, that desire deep inside of you. God knows what needs to go and what needs to stay, and he, needs, and he knows what needs to be brought in. See, the reason we celebrate God is not because we're afraid he's going to punish us. We celebrate God because he's good to us, amen? That he knows the answer to our needs. Verse 53, he fills the hungry and he sends the rich away empty. That's an interesting line. It's like God hates rich people. Not at all. The difference between those who are hungry and those who are rich is the rich aren't hungry. They're full of stuff they don't need. They can have what they want. They make themselves satisfied, but only for a moment. The hungry have to rely on somebody else to provide for them. And in this passage, Mary celebrates that our God will meet the needs of those who confess they have needs. And to those who are satisfied, God will give them to their satisfaction. He will let them stay autonomous. He'll let them live the way they want. Listen to how Jesus introduced the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The poor in spirit are those who know they need help. Now, Jesus doesn't say go out and act all humble and broken like you have nothing. If, if life is good and you have been blessed, it is wrong to not give credit to God for blessing you. But are the blessings that don't last beyond today worth basing your life on? And the answer is no. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. They will find out how God scratches that itch. Verse 6 in Matthew 5, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be what, church? Filled. Mary knew what was coming, and Jesus echoed. I, I venture to say that Mary begins to introduce the Sermon on the Mount before Jesus even preaches it. Because the whole Magnificat is an introduction to an invitation into a kingdom that none of us should be invited in, but all are welcome. It's what Christmas is all about. This young girl saying, are you kidding me? You're going to change my whole life? God says, yeah, will you let me? Be it done to me as you have said. And the history of the world was changed. And God is asking every one of us this Christmas the same question. Will you open your life to me and allow me to use you to change other people's lives like I'm changing yours? Whether you're a believer in this room today or not, whether you're just visiting on Christmas because it's Christmas Sunday and you're with your family and you're going to go have a nice time and you don't mind church, but it's just never been a priority for you. My challenge to you is, are you satisfied with anything that really lasts? If the stock market went down and you lost your job, if you lost your health, would you be devastated? Absolutely. What would you rely on? When your treasures and your health and your status are gone. You see, Christmas, the advent, is God said, I have got the solution for every bit of your life, but it won't make you successful and popular and cool. It'll make you holy and pure and right. So this Christmas, what do we really want? You see, the reason that Jesus feeds the hungry and lets the rich on their own is because the hungry need a savior. Oh, not in the way the church uses it, but if you're starving, you need someone who has food for you. 
If you're hurting, you need healing. If you're lonely, you need love and compassion. And I'll tell you that there's no greater source of any of those than Jesus Christ himself. That's why we say, joy to the world, the Lord has come. I'll let men and women rejoice throughout the world. You see, will we sing about the startling, life-changing love that's given to us? Will we sing about the compassionate satisfaction of our God? Will we sing about his unchanging, historical pursuit of everyone you know? Will you sing of his power, his holiness, and his mercy, just like Mary did? The reason Mary's in the top three in my mind of probably the first Christians is Mary gave her life completely to one cause, to make sure that Jesus was available to all of us. And I, for one, am grateful for a faithful young lady. And I'm even more grateful for the child she brought into this world that saved every one of us. Let's stand together.